Welcome to A Voice from the Hills. I'm James Warner, co-founder of Silicon Hills Wealth Management here in Austin, Texas. And today's podcast can be summed up in a single word, fearless. You know, like most wealth managers, I had heard about Aaron Klein and I knew about Riskalyze. I'd even interacted with Aaron a couple times on social media and I think I understood pretty, in a basic terms, the system that Aaron and his team had built. Then I went to Wealthstack. Uh, It's a conference in 2019, pre-COVID. It's all the cutting edge fintech providers and who's who of the wealth management industry, just kind of a lollapalooza of people in our industry. And I'm heading toward my uh, educational session in the afternoon. I see this room, it's just overflowing with advisors. My first thought is, what are they giving away? Because after all, even the wealthiest advisor loves a good conference tchotchke. I ask around, nope, no prizes are being offered. It's just a regular session. A simple breakout session on managing risk in financial markets. I peek my head inside the door and the single word at the start of the slideshow in all caps is fearless. So I quickly abandoned my selected educational itinerary. I crammed in the room with the rest of the masses to listen to the presentation. The presentation was good, don't get me wrong, but the buzz around the room, the unabashed testimonials, that's what stuck. To get this many mostly skeptical financial ties to be this excited about anything was clearly a sign. And after doing some work on Riskalyze, we understood the fervor. It's cool technology, simple interface. Our clients really got it and understood it. And there's lots and lots of integration opportunities. And then we did a little work on the founder. And it's hard to imagine a more admirable and capable tone setter than Aaron Klein. We're lucky to have Aaron on today's podcast to talk about not only the company he founded, but the path that he trailblazes in our industry, in society, and at home in his community. So please join me in welcoming a true leader in fintech, a true mentor in how to live a meaningful and impactful life, Aaron Klein. James Warner is the founding partner of Silicon Hills Wealth Management and the host of A Voice from the Hills podcast. All opinions expressed by James, his co-host, and his guest are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Silicon Hills Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Silicon Hills Wealth Management may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Good morning, Aaron, and thank you for joining us. Hey, great to be with you, James. Hey, I thought we would start the conversation not really at the beginning of uh, Riskalyze, but maybe uh, I think you refer to it as the year of successful failure. <laughs> uh, when you're on, you're on a plane ride back, I think from yeah. a, a licensing deal that that didn't that didn't happen. Yeah, uh, take, take us back to that time as a founder. Yeah. What was absolutely what, what was going on? Well, you know, when you start a company, you have dreams of um, everything is just going to work really, really well. Your 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 strategy is just going to unfold exactly the way you foresee it. And, um, you know, sometimes that happens, but I, I haven't experienced it yet, um, you know, and and in, in Riskalyze's case, you know, when we started the company back in 2011, uh, we we really had a lot of thinking around, we wanted to, you know, the ultimate goal was that we wanted to serve financial advisors. We really felt like the world's a better place if, if more people have better access to financial advice. Our core mission is empowering the world to invest fearlessly. And we say we do that by equipping financial advisors with great technology that allows them to democratize access to their advice and allow more people to get access to, um, to financial advice. And that's really good for the world. Um, but when we started, you know, one of the things we said, just trying to be humble, we're like, you know, not many great advisors are going to road test brand new risk technology on their clients, right? Their clients are the most precious thing that they have. And the second most precious thing are prospective clients walking through the door. So, you know, great advisors are just not going to road test us on, you know, their clients or even their prospects. And so we've got to figure out how to validate the technology that we were building. So we'd spent 2011 really building out the core technology and, you know, kind of kind of preparing to go out into the market with the product. But we had decided from a strategic standpoint to start by um, putting the technology out in kind of a free direct to investor version, kind of targeting the $25,000 E-Trade guys who aren't using an advisor. Uh, and, sure. and we wanted to validate the technology that way. And then we said, what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to, in effect, 
license it. We're going to prove it out that way. And then we're going to license it to one of the big five at the time, five brokerage firms. Now it's down to three of those firms, right? Because that <laughs> trade sold to TD Ameritrade, who sold to Schwab, right? So, but at the time it was five. And um, we said, we're going we're gonna to get one of the five to come aboard here. And then we're going to use the money from that licensing deal to go build the product we want to build for financial advisors, because we'll have, you know, a track record of success uh, with the technology and we'll have, you know, a big logo customer to give it validation. And so then we'll go, you know, take the product to financial advisors. So, yeah, we get into 2012 and I start traveling back and forth trying to get a licensing deal done. Because by the way, I like you said, we call it the year of successful failure because the successful part was we rolled it out on the web like we planned. Um, we got some great PR. We were in the New York Times, Barron's, NPR. We, we had you know users come in and build $2 billion worth of portfolios on the platform. And it was average account size, $27,000. So we, we nailed that 25K E-Trade guy, right? And, um, and people just loved it. They were figuring out their risk number. They were figuring out how to align their portfolio with their risk number. And so, you know, it was pretty clear that it had some traction there, a little bit of smoke, you know, and we're like, we got to get the licensing deal so we can get the money to go build the advisor product. And, um, you know, so it turns out that, you know, the failure part was that licensing deal because I'm certain, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm crisscrossing the country trying to get that deal done. And pretty quickly, like I, I, if memory serves, it was Fidelity and Scott Trade and I think it was Schwab were like, hey, we just don't really partner for, um, you know, technology on our retail platform. We just don't really do that. Okay. Funny because uh, today, like one of those <laughs> is actually a partner for their personal investing product, right? Uh, and they license commercialized via APIs. So, you know, it, it all turns around eventually. But, uh, but in any case, that was their answer then. And so that left us with two, E-Trade and TD Ameritrade. And E-Trade was kind of going through financial trouble in 2012. They almost slid into bankruptcy, like lost their CEO again. They wanted to do the deal and they just could not, you know, get to a decision in, in the challenges that they were having as a company. And then we kind of got the deal with TD. And, you know, I still remember I flew the, the flight you're talking about. I flew to Baltimore because we're going to we're going to put a contract together and we're going to put a plan together to implement all of this. And in that meeting, uh, you know, basically they said, well, talk to us about your tech stack. And so we built a very modern tech technology stack. And they said, oh, we can't even talk to web services until we complete our technology transformation. We don't even you know, like we can't interoperate with that. Come back and talk to us in like six quarters. Um, and at the moment in time, I think we had like three months of money in the bank, right? you know, and uh, I, I was I was pretty convinced that like we had hit the wall and we, we were kind of not going to work like it was not going to work. So I got back onto the plane in Baltimore and I pulled out my notebook and somewhere I've still got the notebook page where I wrote at the top the what I call the Apollo 13 question, you know. Oh, and, and it's what do we do well here? Yeah, yeah. yeah. What do we have on the ship? What works? Good? What do we have on the ship? <laughs> good? Right. That's what Gene Cran said. You know, I don't. I don't care about what it was designed to do. I care about what it can do. And so, like, what do we have on the ship that's good? And the two things that I could write were great core technology, great risk technology, right, and two billion dollars worth of validation from the consumers, the E Trade guys that were using it, and. You know, it just kind of struck me like we we maybe we could go ahead and like um, I can't I went back and, and met with the team and I said, hey, you know, if we're going to go down, let's go down swinging. Let's rebuild the product. Let's use the, the little bit of money we have left in the bank. Let's rebuild the product for financial advisors and let's see if our two billion dollars of validation aren't enough. And, you know, we, yeah, so you, you spent you spent two years curating the idea, really. Yeah. Some time building the tech. That's right. You release it. It actually works. Yeah. You find out that your tech is more advanced than some of the larger yep. players in the industry, which yep. would surprise most people, right? Yeah, that's right. And now you're meeting with your team and you're talking about pivoting to survive. I mean, yeah. what, what, what is that like? And what, who was on your team at that time? Well, it's a small how many, how many, Give us an idea. What, what did that room look like? Yeah. So our, you know, my co-founder, Mike McDaniel, 
um, was a co-founder in every sense of the word, word, but he wasn't actually working at Riskalyze yet because he was still a financial advisor and you know still under the BD side, so outside business activity, the whole nine yards. So he wasn't actually free to work in the company. I would talk to him, get advice from him, but like he didn't have an operating role, didn't have a title, didn't have an office. Um, you know, but he was definitely helpful at, at that point in time. But the team was really two other two other people. It was a guy named Matt Pistone, who was our founding CTO. And it was a guy named Levi Nunnink, who was, uh, you know, kind of the founding front end engineer and design guy and just like a brilliant, talented guy. And so these two guys and I are, are, are sitting down. So it's two engineers and me, by the way, when everybody asks, um, what is the meaning of the three hexagons in the Riskalyze logo? I said, well, there were two engineers and me in the company. So now you know the limits of my design skills with Adobe Photoshop. Like that's the grand story <laughs> behind the Riskalyze logo. Okay. Well, yeah, it was, it was, it was, you know, I, it was Labor Day weekend, 2012. And I asked those guys to come down to our little office and, and we sat down and, and I just said, look, like this may not work, but I, I feel like we've got some smoke and there are advisors, you know, like our co-founder, Mike, who need this technology to use with their clients. So if we rebuilt it for advisors, I think they might buy into the $2 billion of validation we've gotten, even though we don't have the big logo and we don't have the money. And maybe our investors will stand behind us if we can show some traction with that. And so that's that ended up to be what happened. And maybe in a in a cruel twist of fate, maybe not having that, you know, not having that rubber stamp from one of the bigger players actually ended up. It's very possible. Cultivating the, we became, the independence. That's right. We became know. the champion of the independent financial advisor in a, in a lot of ways. And I love that. Like we love supporting financial advisors, you know, frankly, through all phases of, of practice. But, um, you know, we have we have found our home in independent financial advice for sure. Well, I, I remember when I was at Wealthstack uh, for the I guess it was in Arizona. Yeah. And, you know, they had multiple multiple different meetings going on. A lot of a lot of tech stuff that that was there that was really attractive. And I remember walking by the Riskalyze room and I swear it was, it was just pandemonium. It was like, oh, man. I've never seen this many financial advisors excited about anything, especially, you know, technology related. I love it. And so I was like, man, we got to go in there and take a look at this. That so it was, uh, I, I really, I very rarely have I ever seen that level of passion mm -hmm. that was associated to your, and it was, I think you've, you've talked about it before. It, it's not just the risk number. It's that having that risk number, having that quantifiable aspect of potential results is actually leading to people making better decisions and being better clients. And that's, yeah. you know, being better investors. And that that's really the holy grail of it, right? I think that's uh, right. I think I, that's I think, what the passion was. Totally. I think that's right. And I think, you know, that, that really goes to the passion that financial advisors have to see their clients succeed, right? Um, because they know, I, I actually, I think there's a lot of financial advisors who maybe don't even recognize just how valuable their work is. I mean, you are the difference between people making it to a secure and confident retirement where they're not dependent on other people, or maybe the chance for their grandkids or their kids to go to college, or maybe world changing nonprofit giving that, that wouldn't happen otherwise. And, you know, advisors have a real passion you know, obviously it benefits their own business when their clients succeed, but they have a real passion for seeing their clients succeed. And, you know, the most painful thing that I've ever heard from any advisors when they say, yeah, you know, my client basically insisted on selling at the bottom of the 5% probability event in 2009 of the global financial crisis, right? Like, like I, you know, I, there's nothing worse than watching your clients self-destruct their financial future because, it's a two-way street when you're a financial advisor. Financial advisors can only deliver great financial outcomes when they have a partner and a client willing to make good short-term decisions along the way. And that really is the essence of what we built Riskalyze to do is to help give the financial advisor kind of a framework to get their clients to react to risk appropriately. So if we go back to that time when you were when you were about to make the pivot and about to, yeah. you know, kind of rebrand re everything to go directly to the advisor. Sure. If you had to, if you had had to put together a job description for yourself, what would that have looked like? 
That's a great what would, question. What would have been on that list? Well, I would tell you that I feel like I've been through four, five, maybe six iterations of the CEO job at Riskalyze. It's the one that, you know, it's 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 the longest title I've ever held in my entire career, right? And it's it's eleven plus years now. And um, but but I feel like it's actually been like four or five, maybe six different jobs along the way. Right. Because it was very different when it was a, a pre-revenue startup and we're experimenting and trying lots of different things. And then it became different when we were trying to transform ourselves into a business and actually like pivot towards financial advisors. And then it became different again as that started to work and we needed to scale the organization and grow and so on and so forth. Um, but, you know, I would say that that point in time when we really did the pivot towards advisors, a lot of it was learning because, you know, I, I knew some great financial advisors, but I certainly had not been one. And I needed to get a crash course in learning more about how financial advisors thought. And there was no better way than I was the company's first um, sales rep. You know, like I was sitting there on the phone talking with advisors about their needs and, and what they needed to do. And I remember, you know. Funny story, like in the in the first couple of, um, you know, calls and interactions that I had in probably late 2012, early 2013, even before the product came out of beta, and I'm talking to financial advisors about this and showing it to them in a demo, you know, I was initially talking to them from a compliance standpoint, from a, you know, business protection standpoint. And I would say that um, probably the kinds of advisors I was talking to are kind of like early adopters. And they're kind of out there on the on the high risk range. So guess what? They were not motivated by business protection or compliance at all. Um, it's kind of like, why would I buy insurance for something that might happen tomorrow, but has never really threatened my firm yet? Okay, so that that just didn't resonate at the time. By the way, that's a huge resonance today because advisors know, you know, particularly as we're deeper in the adoption curve, advisors know that like, you know, that that disgruntled client who wants to use 2020 hindsight to question your decisions can be a threat to your business value and documenting that the client said they wanted to be a risk 55 and you delivered a risk 55 portfolio or, or thereabouts to them, you know, proves that you were acting in concert with what they wanted. And, you know, it eliminates that 2020 hindsight thing. So business protection is a big deal. Now it was not as big of a deal then. So you know, I'd kind of shifted to the growth message. I, you know, and there are a lot of advisors looking to grow their practices, right? And, you know, I, uh, I, I, you, you talk about the fact that, hey, you know, your prospect comes in, they're, they're risk 45, you plug in their current portfolio from, you know, some big firm that's not paying attention, and that portfolio is invested like a risk 92. That's a powerful moment for you to bring that client aboard into your practice. That was resonating really well. And then I hit a call where the advisor was not buying that at all. And you want to know why? He was probably about 75 or 80 years old, okay? And I'm about halfway through showing him how Riskalyze can help him grow his practice. He said, son, let me stop you right there. He goes, I could use another client like I could use a hole in the head. And in my head, I was just like, huh. And I, and I, I pivoted really quickly in my head and I said, well, let me show you how Riskalyze can, can get you out on the golf course by 2.30 every afternoon, guaranteed. He goes, now you're talking, son. Show me show me what you're talking about, right? And uh, is, that, is, that, is that the lifestyle pivot? Yeah, that's the lifestyle pivot, right? Like he was a lifestyle advisor. He didn't want to grow anymore. He had a great client base and, you know, he wanted to do good work for his clients in the morning and be out on the golf course in the afternoon. And, you know, I was able to show him how Riskalyze was helping, you know, was able to help those clients instead of them calling him all afternoon saying, well, you know, I'm down 3%, am I okay? That he could educate them on what is normal for their portfolio and get them to go, of course I'm okay. You know, uh, James just showed me that it would be normal for my portfolio to be down 8%, you know, anytime during the next six months, right? So it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's definitely that whole process of pivoting and, 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 and learning how to make a business work. It's a lot of learning and listening and, uh, and, and, and really uh, trying to show off what you have to offer and see how it resonates with the marketplace. One of the concepts you talked about that I, I really got a kick out of was how the original the original idea was to slay confirmation bias. That was yeah. your that that was the that was the goal written probably on the on the piece of notebook paper on the desk. That's right. right. That was the original uh, goal. 
And, you know, like Father Time confirmation bias is probably undefeated, but you talk about being able to harness it. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I, we did. And- we started off very naive, James, with, with you know, thinking, hey, we, we need, you know, confirmation bias. Behavioral scientists call it the mother of all biases, right? Um, and it's that thing that we, what we see in the world and the data that we see tends to confirm the things that we already believe, right? And so... Um, the, where that really affects us as investors is we we believe that green is good and red is bad. So when we see the markets as red and red is bad, that means we want to sell them, right? And when we see things that are green, that means good. That means we want to buy them. And somewhat counterintuitively, if we do that with our investments, we are always buying high and selling low. Rinse and repeat for 30 years and we will be broke, right? And so... Um, confirmation bias is a huge problem and, and it's a big part of the component of our psychology that sabotages us as investors. And so we started the company saying we got to defeat confirmation bias. That's, that's really what we're kind of put on earth to do. And we were probably, I don't know, six to nine months into that journey that, that I kind of came to this realization. I'm like, I don't think we can defeat confirmation bias. And, you know, and then we kind of realized that what we really needed to do was to help advisors harness it. So, you know, what I mean by that is if you're meeting with your client and you're saying, look, there's 95% of the risk that I can quantify for you as your advisor. There's 5% of the risk I can't quantify. These are things like black swans, pandemics, invasions, you know, uh, uh, in, in massive inflation induced recessions, you know, that are happening right now. Okay. There's about 5% of the risk we can't quantify, but 95% of the time, the markets tell us that this is normal behavior for your portfolio, okay? And if you're uncomfortable with how your portfolio might behave 95% of the time, we should talk about that. And then we can flip on the stress test and kind of look at some of the 5% probability events in the past and make sure that you're that you're comfortable with kind of what would be normal for your portfolio. And when you do that, and you do that especially repeatedly over time with a client, it puts you in a really great position that when that market downturn comes, when that 5% probability event comes, we can let we can harness confirmation bias to work for us because we can say to the client then, hey, look, let's look back at the decision that you made six months ago, a year ago, a year and a half ago. These were the right decisions for your portfolio. And we've watched that be validated time and time again. So you know, the fact that we've hit one of those 5% probability events that you foresaw and you planned for in the past doesn't mean that we made the wrong decision. It actually means that we made the right decision and we can have the confidence. The one thing we know about 5% probability events is that the worst time to sell is at their bottom. The people who did that in 2009 have still yet to recover. So we don't want to be one of those people. And that some of them have yet to reinvest. (laughs) Exactly. And And they've still yet to recover. And so you know, that is that is really what allows somebody to go, OK, the data that I see confirms that I was right in the first place. And now we're using confirmation bias to the benefit of the investor to keep them invested in alignment with their risk number for the long term. Yeah. And, and I think you, you hit on it a little bit earlier that risk, of course, is dynamic, right? It, whether it's coming from the, the dynamic situation of the individual, their capacity for risk might change. Yep. Job situation might change. Yep. Uh, you know, you get married to somebody that has a different risk number than you do. I mean, there are all all, all kinds of ways and yeah. reasons your risk changes. Totally. Uh, but also on the on the other side of it, I mean, you've got, you know, cryptocurrency that comes into the landscape that yep. probably wasn't even there when you guys were talking about. That's right. Risk allies, right? Right. And it, it's not that you can choose whether or not to incorporate it into the model. You have to because. Right. Whether I'm an advisor who's for it or against it or whatever, your job is to quantify that and, That's right. and try to hone that into my risk number, right? That's right. No, they're, they're, how do you how do you deal with all that stuff? Well, all there's different you know, dynamics. Gosh, we have when we when we first rolled the product out for advisors, I want to say we had roughly forty to sixty thousand securities, um, you know, or products or strategies on the platform. And today it's well over like 800,000. Like we've just dramatically grown the coverage. And some of that is by, you know, we invest in buying market data feeds to to analyze more securities. Some of that is partnerships directly with asset managers where they contribute data to the platform. Uh, But we do it all with quantitative data. So we've got to have data for it. And and that's that's really the key. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, with crypto, that's a really good example of something where, you know, it's kind of controversial that we've added Bitcoin to the platform. You can analyze Bitcoin on the platform. But I, I look at that and I just say, look, um, financial advisors, even if you're opposed to cryptocurrencies and you don't think they're good investments, like we're not here to tell you whether a good investment or not a good investment, you know, you, you have to deal with it because your prospective clients are walking through the door, potentially owning it. So maybe you're using Riskalyze to show them why Bitcoin doesn't fit the risk profile of their portfolio. Who knows? Okay. But I, I, I had one advisor get kind of mad. He said, well, for crying out loud, if rocks were correlated, would you analyze those two? <laughs> and I said, well, yes, if we could get a data feed for them. But also, I think we already do. Because like, isn't that what kind of already happened? Is? Yeah. Isn't that what GLD is? Like, it's, it's a rock that's heavily correlated with something or anti-correlated with something. So anyway, you know, yes, we're, we're, we're going we're gonna to be agnostic, continue to be agnostic about whether an investment is a good investment or a bad investment, that's up to the financial advisor to decide. Um, we're here to help them. So have you noticed, have you noticed any trends in the math, any changes to, to the risk numbers of, of cash or, or different correlations of things that have started to, I mean, obviously for investors in the last six or seven months, I mean, yeah. the, the risk off nature of bonds hasn't played out like it typically does over right. a, you know, over those 95% periods. Yeah, I'd love to go back uh, and do a little bit more study on um, how maybe the risk number relationships between different asset classes have changed over time, because I think that would be super interesting. I would say that, you know, uh, let's pick on the S&P 500 index. It has ranged all the way from, I think, a 74 on the low end to an 82, 83 on the high end. Um, and, and again, that's based on the level of volatility that is in the model. You know, we've been on this on this bull run since 2000, call it, you know, middle of 2009, right, where up until 2020, um, it was a fairly uninterrupted bull run where you were either got a sideways market or you've got an up market with tiny little pockets of volatility along the way. Um, you know, so we really had to hit 2020 to see a crazy downturn in the market. And then you had to hit 2022 to see a real sustained, you know, bear market come onto the horizon. And um, and so, you know, for sure, that's the, the, the risk number of the S&P 500 was dropping during much of that decade. And now it's rising again because you've got much more of this bear market, um, you know, kind of coming into the math. Um, and I think that's a natural and that's a positive thing. I think that's true. I think that the the you know, if we ignored the fact that we were on a long you know, bull market and just said, nope, we're fixing the math at risk 82, we'd be doing our customers a disservice because markets are dynamic, risk is changing, and that is what was happening in the marketplace. Um, the other thing I would point out is, you know, we really firmly disagree with what we call predictive guesswork, trying to guess what the markets are going to do, and then adjusting risk numbers manually to kind of reflect our opinions or our biases. Um, I just think that that's a recipe for disaster because, um, you know, we're, we're, we're fallible human beings like everybody else and nobody gets their calls right all the time. So we want to be able to lean back and go, no, we're, 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 we want you to have confidence that we're using real data. Now, sometimes, you know, I've, I had a couple financial advisors call me and just go, whoa, like, you know, I had, I had this short duration bond portfolio in the 2020 pandemic crash that broke the buck and went down and you had it rated as a risk one. And I said, well, listen, if, if I'd have put a risk 35 on that short duration bond fund, okay, before, you know, the, 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 the commercial paper market seized up and caused those funds to kind of be wacky for a few days, you just said I was crazy. You're like, this, we're, we're lending a billion dollars to Microsoft for five days. This is as risk free as you get, right? Right. Um, and so, so that's one of the things where I've got to say, listen, that's a 5% probability event for that fund. The fact that that fund was a part of your portfolio and your whole portfolio probably stayed within the 95% historical range, like it's not a 5% probability event for the portfolio, but it was a 5% probability event for that fund. And we're not going to we're not going to ever claim that we can see the future and predict what's going to happen in the future because that's just guesswork. And we're not good at that. We're never we're never going to pretend that we're good at it. And then uh, in, in terms of just your biggest challenges going forward? Is it more, is it more the challenge of education? Is it more the challenge of managing the, the, the platform behind the scenes? What, what do you see as the, as the biggest challenge for your business going forward? That's a great question. Um, you know, I think first and foremost, 
as we continue to grow and we, we experience a lot of growth, we want to be the same organization, um, you know, uh, after each period of growth that we were at the beginning, because we've built a, a mission driven organization that lives by its values. And so, you know, we publish those out for the world to see at riskalyze.com slash values. And, you know, we live by them. We operate by them. It's one of the things I'm most proud of our, of our team is that, is that I hear people operate and live by our values day in and day out. Values of integrity for the markets and for the investor and for the customer. Values of communication and teamwork and, and you know, working to delight our customers every day. So, so that's one big uh, challenge that I think about. A second one is just, you know, keeping up with technological change, right? We... Um, we have we are investing a huge amount of money uh, this year in rebuilding a lot of our data architecture behind Riskalyze to be faster and speedier. Re, you know, rearchitecting a lot of of how we do some of those things because guess what? The world is changing. Portfolios are getting bigger. They have more funds in them. They have more complexity in them. Um, the volume of data that we're that we're managing for each advisor and each portfolio is getting much bigger. So we're we're spending a few million dollars just rearchitecting our entire data architecture this year to make things faster and speedier because we want to be the fastest, speediest web app that any advisor has ever used. Um, and so, so that's just some of the things that I think about that that we're we're staying very focused on. Make sure you know we continue to be the organization we are. Make sure the technology stays up to date and the product is. At, you know, as amazing and phenomenal as what drove all that passion in that room you were talking about a few years back, yeah. and um, and that our service. Experience- well, if we go back, if we go back to that room when you start talking about the core values of the company, they yeah. were largely your your core values, correct? I mean, you you and a very right. small group of people to start. Yeah, I think that's right. And I always wonder with every founder that we that we talk to, uh, what what role did Casey play? in this as you were as you were going on what oh yeah if she would have been she was maybe unofficially on the team but it's hard to be the spouse of a founder and not be on the team in some way shape or form 100 i was wondering what role does she have in terms of culture and yeah and, and being that person to motivate you and pick you up right yeah i mean first of all she just played such a huge role in um the success of the company uh in uh, on so many levels you know um first and foremost just being a sounding board that you can trust and somebody, and she has this amazing sixth sense about people. I'm a decent read of people, but she is an, an amazingly elite read of people. And so I, you know, uh, every one of the folks on our senior leadership team will laugh and tell you that, um, you know, they, they had to pass the Casey test at dinner before they got invited to join, you know? Um, so, so I, you know, and, and it's never steered me wrong. Like if she, if she, um, if she leaves and goes, I don't know about that person. Like that's probably a really, really good signal, you know? Um, and, and, you know, that has played out in how we think about ensuring that we hire the right people. I mean, you know, this, you know, uh, just as well as anyone, uh, the people that you hire are the firm that you have, right. And, and the firm that you, that you present to the world. And so, you know, we, that's so critical to get that right. And I will tell you, you know, where we've gotten that wrong is where we got to a point where we had scaled enough that I couldn't do like what I called the veto interview with every new hire. Right. And we'd, we'd grown enough that like people were like, Aaron, we can't get the veto interview on your calendar for like two weeks. Like we're missing great talent because this is not scaling. And my big mistake for a couple of years is that I just kind of said, OK, well, I got to let that process go. And instead of eliminating the process, what I should have done is replace the process. And a couple of years later, I said, you know, I, I'm bringing that back, but in a different form. And we created what we call the nine values team. I went and hand selected about 15 people who were just like real keepers of the culture, like passionate about our values, passionate about who we were um, and and really, uh, really good at like reading people and, 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 and making decisions in that way. And I asked them. So we've brought back what we call the nine values interview. And it's, it's a half hour interview at the end of the hiring process. You know, if you're a software engineer and you're trying to get hired at Riskalyze, we've already put you through a bunch of, in, of interviews to figure out that you're competent, that you're really, really good at your job, that you're very talented. Um, Quantitatively, I, you've passed the test. Yeah, that's right. You've got, you're, you know, you are, um, you're, you're talented there. You've got good competency. 
I won't let an engineer on the nine values team do the nine values interview though, because they might get blinded by your brilliance technically, right? So we're going to have somebody maybe in our service team or on our sales team do the nine values interview with that, with that engineer, because they're, they, they have no idea whether you're a brilliant engineer or not. They're just going to be focused on, do you reflect our values? Can you come into this culture and be a part of, are, are you the right kind of person that we want to put in front of a customer and be proud to have as a part of this organization? And, you know, that, that has just, that has worked so well to realign, to make sure that our workforce is reflective of our values. And we love having people come and help us evolve and grow our values for the future, but that's a one or two or three degree change. That's not a 180 in the, in the opposite direction. And um, that's, wow, that's really part cool. of helping us to grow. Yeah, I think I think as, as somebody who does business with your company, I like to hear that. I mean, that's a that's an interesting uh, it's an interesting thing I haven't heard on uh, a lot of your other uh, interviews. So yeah, thanks for sharing that. For sure, my pleasure. Uh, just to change gears for a second, so you and Casey are adoptive parents. I mean, you have three uh, adoptive children. Yes. Uh, let's talk about that for a second. When did you decide to? to adopt? How did you arrive at that decision? Yeah. Well, neither of us have ever been diagnosed with the reason we couldn't have kids biologically. It just didn't happen for us right away. And we kind of felt like it was just, you know, God's plan A for us in terms of having a family. And, and our, um, my youngest sister was adopted from Romania. So we're really comfortable and understood the process and she's amazing. And so we, uh, we, we decided to embark on that journey. And um, our son Spencer was born in South Korea. He came home at eight months old. Um, our daughter Emma, a couple years later, was born in Ethiopia. She came home at eight months old. You know, that got us involved in nonprofit work in Ethiopia because, uh, you know, uh, international adoption in South Korea was kind of driven by cultural reasons, but international adoption in Ethiopia is driven by poverty reasons. And, you know, uh, no knock on anybody in this great country of ours, but like you haven't seen poverty until you've visited sub-Saharan Africa. You really haven't. And so that got us involved in uh, some pretty cool things in Ethiopia. And on one of our trips back, actually met the kid who became the oldest Klein kid. Um, and uh, he, Teddy, came home at uh, about 11, about to turn 12. And so now they are 18, 15, and 13. And um, I like to joke, we've named them Eeny, Meeny, and Miney because there ain't going to be no mo. <laughs> and so that that must be in and of itself kind of a challenge because, you know, it, with biological children, I mean, you're having them chron- chronologically. So sure. you're, 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 in your case, your newest child is also your eldest. Yeah, it, it, you know, how did was, how did that play out? Was that was that a weird concept? There was or? a little bit of trepidation on my part uh, with that in particular, and I think on Casey's part as well. Um, and you know, ultimately, we just had to kind of sit back and trust that um, you know that that it was it was going to work out, and and we just felt a sense of peace about that. Spent a lot of time, you know, uh, uh, thinking about it, doing some praying about it too. And we just kind of, you know, got, got at peace with that. And I'll tell you what, what ended up happening, which is kind of amazing is Spencer, you know, we kind of, it kind of came back to our memories that Spencer actually had like an older biological half brother. You know, we don't know that biological half brother. We don't really have any connection with his family in Korea. Hopefully at some point he turns 18, they open the file. Maybe we'll have some opportunity there. Um, but, uh-huh. but, you know, don't right now, but we knew that from his records and, you know, we kind of realized in hindsight after Teddy came home that like Spencer was almost a little bit stressed about being the oldest and he, he loves being the loyal number two. Um, it's almost like less stressful for him. And so, like those two boys, they're only a year apart academically, even though they're three years apart in age. And so they're, you know, they, they drove themselves to high school last year as sophomore and freshman in high school together. And they're just best of buds. And I, you know, we love it. It's just been so great for our family. So um, we feel really grateful. Wow. So what, what advice would you give parents who are considering adoption and what it's if, a, if you had to sit down and talk to him for a few minutes yeah, about it. For sure. It's a remarkable, rewarding journey. You know, it's not for everybody. Don't be a hero and say, oh, I want to do a nice thing for somebody else and adopt. Like if if you are really called to do that, it's a it's a it's it's like having biological kids. They're not easy. Right. Like there's a lot of hard work that goes into raising humans. And, um, you know, adoption comes with its own set of traumas. 
we are designed to bond with our mother in the womb. We're designed to bond with our, our birth father, you know, uh, either well in the womb or shortly after birth. And so when that's severed, there's trauma there. And that's, that's hard. That's hard for any human to process when bonds are severed and there's, and there's trauma there. And so, um, you know, particularly hard for adoptive kids. Um, but I'll just say it's, it's worth it. It's worth it. And we are so grateful and blessed by these three kids. Um, they've just been tremendous in our lives and, and we feel really grateful to be their parents. And then that kind of informed part of your charitable journey or philanthropic journey with sure. the work that you do in Ethiopia. Uh, I was very interested to hear about the success, the passing success rates of uh, yes. of the kids at the school going yeah. from, you know, 70% to a hundred percent. I mean, it just, that's right. You know, really cool. I wish we had more time to even delve into yeah, that's it. That's the eighth but. grade exit exam there. And it's typically a 60, 70% pass rate in the country. And our, our kids have done like consistent 100% pass rates out of that school. It's pretty amazing. But but still, you've got the, I mean, there's there's an active civil war going on, yes. you know, in the country. Yep. Uh, and so, I, and I guess with your, you have employees and contractors, I'm sure in Ukraine as well. I mean, it. We actually did. Those. We've got folks in Poland, which borders Ukraine, but it's a NATO country. And um, and so we felt pretty secure and our folks there have felt pretty secure. Um, cer- certainly, we have some employees that had family in Ukraine or had come from Ukraine, so they were affected by it. Um, but yeah, yeah, there's there's some interesting things going on in our world. And, and man, like this is a risk first decade, is it not? We enter this decade and we go pandemic, civil unrest, divisive election massive inflation, an invasion, and now a recession. Um, you know, I don't know if you believe in reversion to the mean, but if so, it's going to be a really smooth rest of the decade. I'm not counting on it though. Like it's yeah. been a crazy, I mean, either that or aliens are going to land on Monday. That's the only, <laughs> that's the only thing on the bingo card we don't have. That's yet, right. So. That's right. The zombie apocalypse has not happened yet. So there you go. There you go. And so let's talk just for a second about the influences in your life. So your, your father was an entrepreneur. Grandfather was uh, somebody that you, you looked up to in terms of, of how he managed his financial life. That's right. Uh, And, and you've actually kind of, if I'm, if I'm right about this, I mean, you've adopted some of your grandfather's, you know, mentality in, in the way you manage your own finances. Yep. Talk us through about the influences, and if we were to do an interview with with Spencer or Teddy here in twenty twenty five years, yeah, and they were talking about the influences you had on them, what would you want them to say? Oh, I love that. That's a great question. Um, you know, I my my dad taught me, uh, you know, everything I knew about entrepreneurial business before starting Riskalyze, and um, and you know, he taught me a few simple things that it takes a lot of grit to be an entrepreneur that. You know, you've got to take care of your clients. And if you do that, they'll take care of you. Uh, you know, everything in business is about relationships. And um, I just learned so much from him on that. And then, you know, his big mentor was my grandfather on my on my mom's side. And, um, you know, my dad was actually orphaned uh, pretty young as a kid. And so, um, you know, he broke that cycle for us and was an amazing dad. But his mentor was my my grandfather on my mom's side. And yeah, he he was a World War II and Korean uh, veteran uh, who worked for Lockheed Martin, and you know was pretty financially successful. And um, you know, I not 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 crazy wealthy, just you know upper middle class. And um, but his ethos was always, hey, you give the first ten percent that you make, and you save the next ten percent that you make, and then you live on the rest. And that's how you that's how you kind of size your your financial budget. Um, and so, you know, that got passed down to me and, um, you know, that has just, uh, proven to be a, a lifesaver in many cases. And, you know, we've tried to pass that down to our kids. We use this really cool app, uh, for our kids called Greenlight. And so Spencer, uh-huh. Teddy and Emma all have Greenlight accounts and they've got a debit card and they have their own money in Greenlight and you can put it into the save bucket or the give bucket or the spend bucket. And so they do their 10%, 10% and 80% in that way. And uh, then Greenlight just rolled out investing. So Emma hasn't gotten into investing yet, but Spencer and Teddy both own their stocks 
you know, through the through the investing app on Greenlight. Spencer, you know, still comes in. He's like, Dad, these ones are red. Like, we need to sell them. And I'm like, No, son. Like, like we don't sell when it's red. Okay. We made a good <laughs> back here. Yeah, we're we're just we're just walking through. So as soon as we get green light to put the risk number in the app, we'll be golden. But uh, but there you go. They're they're having a blast. Oh, that's great. I like that. So what? Let me ask you a personal question. Sure. What's your risk number? What's my risk number? Well, I have the risk 99 license plate on my car, but that's a little bit more of a joke than anything else. It's probably though in the high eighties. Um, I think, I think I typically come in between 86 and 88 and I guess that's probably reflective of most entrepreneurs. Yeah. Fearless. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And now we're we're, well, we're coming up on the one day. Like you can be fearless and be a 22 if you're invested like a 22, right? I, in my mind, oh, yeah. no, I, fearless investing is about making sure that you are not driven by fear and by and by emotion, but instead you're driven by math. And so we're coming up on the one year anniversary of the you know huge investment into your company sure. uh, by uh, HG. Yep, you've got some recent recent leadership stuff that uh, actually has just kind of crossed the across the wires. So yep. what does it look like for you? It looks like you're going to morph again in another role for, for CEO. How, how do you think your role is going to change? What's uh, you know, what are you excited about in the yeah. year ahead? Well, I, you know, we're nine months into this new chapter and we are so grateful for um, the great partnership that, that we built with HG. I would tell you, you know, <clears throat> prior to that transaction, Riskalyze was owned by, a, a, you know, a combination of its co-founders, early angel investors, and then a minority investment from a firm called FTV Capital. And so, you know, basically I, I went to both those co-founders, you know, uh, who were still in the business, Matt Pistone and, and Mike McDaniel. And I just said, hey, you know, I'm feeling like we're in the third inning of the baseball game. And they said, well, we're feeling like we're in the 15th inning of the baseball game. And I'm like, okay, well, th this is going to be, you know, a good way to create an inflection point for us all. And, um, and so, you know, we did that transaction, Matt and Mike, you know, I, I, they, they worked so hard and did such a great job over the last decade. And I deeply appreciate each of them, uh, but they wanted to transition out to their next adventure. And that's awesome. And um, just so grateful to them. And so, yeah, we've, we've, you know, in, in, uh, we brought HG aboard. I kind of partnered with them. I rolled the majority of what I owned in Riskalyze over and, and, you know, we're partnered together to the future and I'm, I'm super excited about that. And, you know, they're making, they're helping us make a lot of big investments in the business in terms of, you know, we brought in a new CTO, um, you know, brought our, uh, a guy named Justin Boatman, who has sat at the intersection of product meets market for us for seven years and asked him to step in and, and help us build the next generation of the Riskalyze product. Um, and so he's our new chief product officer. And then that opened up the marketing leadership role. And so we brought in a brand new CMO. Um, and, you know, earlier this year, we brought aboard um, Dr. Shari Hensrud, who, uh, it, you know, runs the whole risk and analytics methodology for us. So she kind of filled in a lot of Mike McDaniel's shoes, our new CTO filled in for Matt Pistone's shoes. And, you know, we're kind of, we're kind of set and rolling for this next chapter. And I'm just super excited. I, we are late. And the cool thing is they all think you're in the first inning, right? There you go. There you go. They're in the first <laughs> and the third. I think it works. Uh, but, but you know, like we're, 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 we're just laser focused on how we can help both financial advisors and wealth management enterprises, you know, uh, uh, deliver a lot more uh, fearless investing into how they standardize their process with clients, how they engage with clients, and those enterprises in particular, how we help them have compliance analytics across a growing business. You know, as Silicon Hills wealth management grows, to the extent that you start bringing on more advisors as a part of your firm, you start to need more visibility across the firm. And we're building a lot of tools there to help firms that are growing get more visibility across multiple advisors in a firm. And we do that at scale with some firms that have thousands of advisors. So that's that's a big growth area for us as well. Um, but, you know, our true north is how we serve the financial advisor. And we're never going to lose sight of that. Yeah. OK, last last question for you. Yes. And I appreciate your time very much, and we appreciate everything you do for the industry, uh, you and your team. Thank so, you. and best of luck. What's the one skill you're blessed with that you would credit? If somebody said, "What's the one skill that you're blessed with that you would give credit for your success?" What would that be? Hmm. You know, it's it's probably I'd probably have to point, and I'm I'm thinking about what other people have said to me. I'd probably have to point to. Um, 
it's hard to bring it down to one, but I'd probably bring it down to two things. It's the willingness to work really hard. Cause some people say, are you smart or you work hard? And I'm like, well, I can't do anything about how smart I am. So I'll just work really hard and hope that I'm smart enough to catch up, you know, and, and do something good. Um, but the other piece is communication. And, you know, I was taught by a mentor a long time ago. You cannot over communicate enough as an organization grows, as a company grows. You, you, you just have to say things sometimes over and over and over again to make sure because that's the complexity. That's where organizations run off the rails is when people aren't connected to what the mission is and, and where we're going and what we're trying to do. And so we invest a lot of time in that. And I feel like I just spend a huge amount of my time just communicating and communicating and communicating the direction we're going in. And, you know, that's cool. That's that's a big part of my job. And, and that continues to be a bigger slice of the pie as the job morphs and changes over time. And maybe that's why you have such a connection to advisors, because that's really the same. hundred percent. That's that's really the same thing that, you know, we can't we can never communicate too much. So true. So true. Uh, yeah. This has been a blast. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks and, for having uh, me. Best of luck to you and uh, you and everybody at Riskalyze. Thank you. And that's a wrap for our podcast conversation with Aaron Klein, the CEO and founder of Riskalyze. Hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I do. And, uh, you know, as you'll, as you'll hear in our upcoming episodes with all the different founders, I think Aaron and some of our future founders share a lot of things in common. You know, they, they found this industry that they love and they found a hole in it. Uh, they found something that, that should be done better, that, that can be approved upon. And they just, their persistency in doing so, whether it involves in technology or process or, or what have you, it, it just drives them. But like all founders, I don't think that their participation within their industry and their contribution to the industry as a whole is the total measurement of themselves as humans. And Aaron, probably beyond you know most of the founders that we'll interview and worked with, really encompasses that idea. You know, he's so much more than the company he founded or manages. He's a faithful father. He is, uh, you know, an agent of change within society and within his community. I mean, just a really positive force all the way around. And so, you know, seeing people like Aaron succeed and seeing the impact that he has on the world around him is, you know, is something that we can all take heart from and learn from. And so I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I do. Uh, Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. Obviously, if you'd like to uh, interact with a voice from the Hills, just, uh, you know, link to us, subscribe to us, rate us, do all those things that you do on your podcast platform of choice. We're on uh, Apple Podcasts, we're on Spotify, YouTube, just pretty much wherever. If you want to find us, you can find us at A Voice from the Hills. If you'd like to learn a little bit more about Silicon Hills and what we do, you can check us out on our website at siliconhillswealth.com. And again, thank you so much for engaging with us, for sharing our content, and just really for you know, giving us some of your time uh, during the day, because that's probably your most precious resource. And so thank you so much. And just so you know, what drives us is, is that fundamental idea that we can only do our best work when you are here to listen. Thank you. <laughs>